Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Five things I need to know. We're going to do a guest five things and talk about just two things uh, here with Alan Kruger. It's Professor Kruger of Princeton. Let's just do two things here uh, within the time we've got. How's the minimum wage experiment going in Seattle? I think the evidence is quite mixed for Seattle. The way I read it, it looks like experience with the minimum wage elsewhere uh, has not had an adverse effect on um, minimum wage employers. You know, if you look at the Seattle labor market, it's booming. And I think that makes it a little bit harder to tease out effects of the minimum wage. But uh, certainly in the aggregate, there's no sign that Seattle's high minimum wage has had a negative effect. Within this is, is the crushing reality that we, if you raise the minimum wage, the wages go up above it. Not way above it, but there's a sequential, a, a, a almost bucket brigade effect. Is that still true? There's a spillover effect of the minimum spillover. wage. Spillover. There's, there, there's no question about that. And that's one of the challenges for one of the studies, which cuts off, you know, if, if people got a raise and got promoted and that was a, a result of the minimum wage, it makes it look like it was job loss. So well, I think that's a problem okay. with one of the studies that's gotten a lot of attention. The other two things we need to know, Francine, I'm going to bring this in, but jump in here, Francine, please. I love it. $70,000 a year, going up to 80000 next year. Princeton, hi, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, I'm taking the economics of rock music. Are you kidding me? Have you gotten any hate notes from parents about the economics of rock music? This is uh, the, uh, I have to say, the best class I've ever taught. Yeah, but the what do the parents are so, think? <laughs> the students are learning so much. They're so engaged. I mean, what better way of teaching supply and demand uh, than talking about... Um, iPods and uh, streaming, and um, it's a great way of teaching economics, I have to say. Yeah, and actually, this is a serious point, Tom. It wasn't Jay-Z the first one to kind of cut the middleman and going straight to Apple Music, right? I think it was, but on surveillance, it's Jay-Z. Does this help explain inflation dynamics? (laughs) That's an excellent question. You know, one of the questions I got from the students is, what's going on with inflation? Um, And... Uh, it's, it's a freshman course, Tom, and um, it involves a lot of writing, which was the goal of the course. And I ha- have been talking about disruption and right. technological change and productivity growth. And I think, you know, what's going on with being able to buy right. products on the Internet had put some downward pressure on inflation. I was in a meeting yesterday with General Wurspan, and, and she turned to me and said, well, so what do you think, Kruger and Davos? And I said, you have to go to Davos precisely because of this. The answer is technology as an overlay is evident, large, and it's a mystery, isn't it? It is, and there's really no better place to study it than the music industry. Think of all the technology that was, including the medium we're using right now, radio, and the role radio played in music. But go back to uh, the gramophone and... Um, Francine can't do that. You and I can do that. Uh, uh, yeah, I only listen to Beyonce. Well, the students, the students didn't know what I meant when I said eight track. So, <laughs> in the economics world, in Francine's world across the Atlantic, there's short term, medium term, long term. In American economics, with a maybe a, a historic simplicity, there's take out medium term. There's a short term and long term. In Chicago, it's just do more microeconomics. And in Princeton, it's like do more history. Okay, I get all that. What does transitory mean? 
Transitory isn't in any of the textbooks, I would suggest. Transitory is in Chicago. Transitory is in uh, Princeton. When Chair Yellen says transitory inflation, what does that mean? Well, the way I interpret it is that we're not on uh, the path that we think we're on. It's a transitory detour, but we're going to get back to the path that we think we're on. Is the x-axis normal? Is it? Is it a? Is she thinking short term? Is she thinking long term? Or is it a new invention on the x-axis? I think it's a short term. Uh, you know, uh, my interpretation to transitory, which uh, is a term I've probably used in some of my papers, is that we have shocks which we think are going to fade, and because we think they're short term shocks, we yeah. can consider it as transitory. And Francine, that would be the two back to back press conferences mentioning wireless cell phone bills. Right. And, and I understand that it's transitory and, uh, unless it isn't anymore. Uh, Professor, you know, in the UK, we had a shock and of course it's pounds. So you can argue that we have transitory inflation here. But in the US, how do we know that these phone bills will actually won't stay at the same level? I mean, it's, it's kind of it could be more structural. Well, it could stay at the same level. But what's important is the rate of change. So we kind of absorb the transitory shock from from prices dropping. That that that's, I think, the argument that one could pl- quite plausibly make. Also, you know, the U.S. economy is pretty diverse, and as much as the Phillips curve gets criticized, it is the case as the economy gets tighter. Traditionally, we see wage growth and we see inflation. That's been more sluggish in this recovery. Uh, but I think the underlying dynamics are probably there. I think they've probably been blunted by changes in the labor market, uh, by weakness of labor unions in the U.S., for example. Um, but to my mind, it looks like we're seeing some signs of that dynamic still still operating. If we see uh, the tax overhaul that's been promised come into something concrete, so I don't know whether we see the details, but what would that actually change? Does it change dynamics in GDP significantly, or would that also be transitory? Uh, It's a good question. Um, I think it could have lasting impacts. Um, Of course, it depends upon the shape of the tax changes. Uh, What's been proposed, you know, if the state and local tax deduction is eliminated, that's going to dramatically affect state and local investment in infrastructure, uh, hiring of, of um, first responders, things like that. Uh, other sectors, which will get tax cut, could potentially expand. Uh, so I think the tax proposal and the broad outlines could have substantial effects on, on the U.S. economy. Uh, also, I think we need to take into account in the long run the impact on the deficit. Uh, if the a uh, proposal from the Trump administration adds $2.5 trillion uh, to U.S. debt over over the next decade. I think that's going to affect our borrowing costs. I think it's going to crowd out private sector investment. Uh, when we get to Jobs Day today, obviously it's hurricane-adjusted, hurricane aberration, and the answer is smooth out the moving averages. Do you do that? Do you take three months and Divided by three, I believe. I, that's a little too much math for me this morning. How do you adjust to a one-off of hurricane uh, data change? How, do you, how does a pro do that? Well, first of all, I think the first thing to look for are, are, is going to be signs of the hurricane. Um, hurricane Katrina had a major impact on employment. Uh, the tropical storm Sandy did not have much of an impact on employment, yeah. surprisingly. So I think you look at certain industries that are more weather-affected, and you look at regions yeah. of the country. But on a mathy basis, Professor Kruger, that I think the trip of the media is to take three months and average them together. And I'm going to suggest a pro like you says, no, 
wait and get more data and then regress it out to see where we are. So a guy like you can't go out one or two months. You got to go out six months or 12 months of data and then see where the trend is. Am I right on that? Well, thanks for giving my answer. That, that's absolutely right. And I, I did I think, okay? No, no, you did. You, yeah, that, yeah, that was an A Frank answer, Tom. That's amazing. I went from a C minus <laughs> up to a quality C plus. But you know, what I, what I would say is rather than averaging it, I would look for an add factor and say for this month, what is it that we think we need to add to a plug-in, almost a plug-in. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I guess if, if you're in the markets, right, which is the difference between markets and maybe the pros, is that you need to take a shorter-term yeah. bet because otherwise you're going to lose money, right, Professor? Whereas if you're an academic, you can you can take the longer <clears throat> view. Do you believe that the way the markets are working are, are kind of distorting our economic views? Well, I think that's true to some extent, but the markets are also trying to figure out how the Fed's going to interpret the jobs report. And I think you know, many investors recognize that the Fed's going to take a longer run view and, and try to see through the effects of the hurricanes. I have done this before with you, and I don't like doing it, Professor Kruger. We're going to rip up the script and go to an exceptionally important monograph you put out years ago called What Makes a Terrorist. I read every word of it, every footnote. I was thunderstruck at the time of how you wrote about the people that do these terrible things. Can you take your historic work, who becomes a terrorist, where does terror emerge, what does terrorism accomplish? Can you take that monograph and bring it over to domestic terrorism, like what we saw in Las Vegas? Uh, well, thanks for bringing up the book. And you have good timing because the 10th anniversary edition is going to come out by the end of the year. And I wrote a new, quite long introduction asking exactly the question you asked me. Yeah. Uh, how have the results hold up over the last 10 years? Does this apply to domestic terrorism? I, I would be hesitant to describe Las Vegas in the same language as we talk about other acts of terrorism, since we don't know the motives yet of this individual, this disturbed individual. Um, looking at other incidents of domestic terrorism, both in the U.S. and abroad, the domestic terrorists look like they're more drawn from the middle rather than the elites. They're not the most impoverished, the least educated. They look like people who were on a path uh, towards middle class, uh, towards college education in many cases, and they fell off that path and became radicalized. Um, so it's more pushed to the middle when it comes to domestic terrorism. Professor, how has social media changed terrorism in the last 10 Good years? Good question. Uh, it, it has had a profound effect. It's made it much easier for terrorist organizations to outsource terrorism, to recruit uh, to basically franchise terrorism. Um, I think that's changed the nature of terrorist attacks. Uh, they're less catastrophic in their scale, um, and they're a little bit more sporadic. So I think, it's had, I think it has had a major impact. All right. How will it change in the next 10 years? Is it actually impossible to study this as, you know, as, with hard data like economics because it has more to do with emotions and allegiances? Well, that's a good question. It also has to do with counterterrorism activities. Um, you know, I, I think fundamentally terrorist organizations are trying to pursue some type of a goal, and they're using the means that they think are going to be most effective for them in pursuing that goal. Uh, I don't think that will change, but I think the means that they have at their disposal could change as uh, technology mm. changes going forward. This has been wonderful. It's so nice to see you, not after you sat having coffee, coffee and... Venice. 
Which was the last time. You're finally back teaching. I was at a conference. Okay. Well, we're never going to forget. Coffee with Alan Kruger in Venice while we're in the sweaty confines of Manhattan. Alan Kruger, thank you. On this job, stay at always, in particular, the important perspective on uh, – the American labor economy. He is with Princeton University and uh, look for the new uh, edition, I guess I should say, of what makes uh, a terrorist. Now on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide, William Gross joins us. He is with Janice Henderson as we look at markets on the move. I know that on television, uh, John Farrow and the team have been doing uh, the market movement today, but yields higher, dollar stronger. Bill Gross, just simply, is it morning in America? Well, it's uh, certainly morning, uh, beginning to be morning here in Newport Beach. I, I think uh, to the extent that your question implies wages are moving higher and that, uh, you know, the average wage earner will make more and spend more. Um, I think that's probably a positive. I, I note that the wages, Tom, were revised higher in terms of the last month. And so we have a 2.7% yeah, YOY and yeah, perhaps had it higher. So I, I think that's good for uh, American workers. Within this is a pretty good revisions. I mean, we revised up, I guess, pre-hurricane and that. How does Janice Henderson an adapt and adjust to the hurricane distraction? Well, you, you basically try and uh, throw it out for a month in terms of the employment numbers. You know, we're, we're negative, as you mentioned, in terms of the the, the job growth. So you throw that out. Uh, you look at the wages and you wonder whether or not that, to some extent, was affected by distortions, but yeah. probably not as much. And, and so uh, this is definitely a situation at, here at Janus with uh, analysis of the Fed, looking at the Fed, uh, a red rate hike in December. You know, as long as financial markets remain firm, they certainly are. Uh, as long as wages begin to rise towards, uh, you know, 3%, they certainly are. Um, and... I, th I yeah. think the Fed is slam dunk in terms of uh, raising rates in December. Yes. You know, John, uh, David Weston's given me great charts on Bloomberg Daybreak on television, folks, of weaker Japanese yen. You've really got a jump condition to a weaker Japanese uh, yen. And the idea here of a regime change, Bill Gross, not, you know, what you're going to do on this Friday morning in Newport Beach, but is there going to be a regime change within your Janus unconstrained fund? Because you're starting to get a little more lift and you're starting to get a little more wage growth. Yeah, I, I think, you know, unconstrained basically means that uh, you're not constrained in terms of duration. You can do other things as well. Um, you know, the beauty of the unconstrained fund is it can go negative in terms of duration. That is uh, basically looking for higher rates and making money off of higher rates as opposed to vice versa. And that's what, you know, we've done over the past few weeks, certainly in Germany um, and now in the U.S. You know, we're approaching critical levels. I think, Tom, on that 10-year, for instance, now probably at 240. I haven't seen it in the last minute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now at 240, that we're, we're at a 240, 245 critical level, a long-term downtrend line uh, since the early 1980s where interest rates have fallen by 20 basis points on average per year and we're there at 2.40%. It basically means to me that, you know, if the economy is strong, if wages are in an up move, then, you know, perhaps we can break that trend line and move above 240. But for the moment, to me, right. technically... 
that's where we stop, at least for this day. And this is so critical, folks. The idea of Bill Gross previously telling us 2.60%. Stephen Major of HSBC on this morning looking for, yeah, rates could go up, but then a damper. Let's take the word transitory, Bill Gross, over from Yellen and inflation over to William Gross, and you got to run a bond portfolio. Will these higher yields be transitory, and is it lower for longer, whatever that, wherever that band may be? Well, I think we are lower for longer. There's no doubt about that, and that uh, is what the Fed and other central banks describe as the neutral uh, real uh, Fed funds rate, uh, supposedly now around zero with inflation you know, somewhere around 1.5 or so. Um, but, I, but I think it won't be transitory. I think if, in, in fact, we move above 240 instead of 260, remember mm-hmm. I said that interest rates are falling by 20 basis points a year and that 260 was about a right. year ago. But if, if we move above 2.40, then I think there is a chance that this long-term bull market in bonds uh, is broken and that uh, bond investors should be on the defensive as opposed to the offensive. That's an exceptionally important statement you've heard there from Mr. Gross in the over decade that we've spoken to us. Let's dive into that deeper now with, I'm going to quote to four digits, 2.3841%. Bill, with that important statement of a regime change with a 240 print, how do we adapt and adjust? Let's start with the equity market correlated into bonds. Uh, is the stock market linked into your 2.40% yield world? Well, sure, they're all linked. And, and you know, the typical questions and responses, um, you know, to those types of questions will say, well, we're okay on the stock market until we get to 3% on the 10-year or 4% on the 10-year. I, I think we're inexorably linked uh, on a much shorter-term basis. Um, you know, it's not to say that five basis points on the 10-year will mean 100 negative points mm-hmm. on the Dow, uh, but those things are connected. It's all connected. Um, you know, a recent uh, last night uh, article from The Economist in terms of the overvaluation of all assets, you know, to my way of thinking is true. You know, the low interest rates everywhere, and they're negative in many parts of the world still, uh, basically have distorted prices in terms of equity, in terms of commercial real estate, in terms of spreads on high-yield bonds, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yes, this is critically important on the 10-year uh, to define other asset prices. And if we move uh, significantly higher, 240, 250, 260, you know, investors have got to understand that uh, the connection is a, a negative influence on their right. asset holdings. Bill, then, then one final question here, and I want to come back and really address this important statement from Mr. Gross, folks, on the idea of a regime, a regime change of 2.40%. When we do that, will we do it with glide paths of stability or will there be a lot more volatility in those old jump conditions that made you gray years ago? Which is it going to be, Bill? <laughs> I think stability, because not many people will believe me in terms of the long-term downtrend. They look at other things. They'll look at the Bollinger Band, and they'll look at the, you know, the near-term stochastics. And so, um, and the Fed will come in and uh, try and talk markets down. So, you know, I, I think it will be a, a gradual up move. But to my way of thinking. Uh, if 240, 245, don't let me hedge it here, but if 240, 245 is broken, right. to me that's a significant sign that the long-term bull market is over. We're going to come back with Bill Gross. You just heard one of the most important statements I've heard from Mr. Growth, Mr. Gross in well over 10 years, the idea of a regime change and the great moderation 
if we go above a 240 on the 10-year, you know, there's some wiggle room there. I don't want to nail them right down to that, but 2.38%, up three basis points on the 10-year uh, right now with the uh, two-year yield up again, another three basis points as well. This is absolutely critical, the idea of a regime change off of a 20-year Great moderation. We will do that with Bill Gross from New York, from London this morning. This is Bloomberg. With us, William Gross of Janice Henderson. Bill, what you said in our last section is so important over this crisis and even before the crisis. It would be uh, irresponsible if I didn't have you recapitulate it. Let me be clear here, Bill. You go from a 260, and if we get a sustained 240 yield, you would suggest that breaks the great moderation? Yeah, above 240, Tom. And let me explain that because it Please. sounds like a lot of hocus pocus. Um, you know, the 10 the years started out at its peak in the early 1980s with uh, Volcker, uh, around 14%. And the fact is, uh, we can analyze this and look at it, that it's come down uh, by 20 basis points a year to this point. It got a little bit lower a few years ago, of course, but that was below trend line. But the trend line was moving down to 20 basis points a year. And why is that important? It's important because it allowed for refinancing of mortgages. It allowed for uh, a more attractive purchases of homes. It allowed for corporate uh, interest expense to go lower and profits to go higher. It was what the economy needed to sustain a 4 to 5% nominal GDP rate, which is really what the Fed's targeting. So that was the magic number per year. The Fed didn't mandate 20 basis points per year, but that, um, you know, based upon their, their Fed fund decreases and their quantitative easing purchases, you know, is what it produced. Now that we're down to 2.4% and 2.35%, it seems to me that the question is, can the economy sustain itself without lower and lower interest rates. And uh, that will be the question. If it breaks 240, 245, investors will be of yeah. the assumption that perhaps the economy right. can survive on its own with, without lower and lower interest rates. I know Francine Lacroix in London wants to get and really take this globally here, wants to get into your bill. But one more question for me and then an ample time for uh, Ms. Lacroix. This is profoundly important, what you're saying, for the Fed. And all I can think of, Bill, is what you studied at Duke in years and years and years. Be careful what you wish for. If Janet Yellen gets a higher yield structure and a little bit higher inflation, what's the outcome that could mess up the central bank cart? Well, uh, the outcome is that they go too far in terms of Fed funds. And this is where I joined with uh, Neil Kashkari. He's probably not the next Fed chairman, uh, but he has been cautioning for a long time that there's a, yeah, there's a limit in terms of what the Fed can do uh, and, and the economy can survive. Because on the other side of this argument, um, interest rates can't go too high because it's highly levered. And uh, a highly levered economy uh, w with higher and higher interest rates you know, runs into problems in terms of uh, destruction and interest rate cover and uh, the like and the like. And so um, you know, a central bank can't go too high. Right now, just to add one additional point, Tom, other central banks are not of the same persuasion. They don't have the same stance in terms of raising interest rates um, like the Fed will do, in my opinion, in December. So uh, you have this, this cushioning effect uh, by the ECB and by the BOJ where they're putting in a trillion dollars worth of money every year. And so that's why I say the, the increase will probably be gradual as opposed to dramatic going forward. 
Good morning from London, Mr. Bill Gross. Will the next Fed chair actually be central banker to the world or only to the U.S.? Well, um, I would hope to the world. Uh, the U.S. dollar is still the global currency, and as long as it is, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, interest rates in the U.S. is set by the Fed on the short-term side, you know, are an important consideration going forward. Uh, depends on the chairperson, of course. Uh, I, I think Yellen has treated, uh, you know, the Fed as the global central banker, although she won't acknowledge that. Uh, but perhaps we'll get a, a different persuasion if someone like uh, Cohn or um, I suppose even Powell, although I, I, I'm not a, a Powell advocate going forward, but they seem to be the the choices that the market uh, is talking about. Who would you put in charge? Well, I, I uh, strangely enough, I, I join uh, Jeffrey Gunlock uh, in, in this one. It's not going to happen, I don't think. I won't predict it. But uh, Neil Kashkari has got uh, great experience in terms of the uh, the Lehman crisis. We know that. He's had experience at Goldman. He's had experience at PIMCO. I knew him for three years. He's a brilliant man. Uh, and he's got ideas that are a little bit different than other central bankers. Uh, he looks at the market a little bit different from a structural standpoint as opposed to a, simply a a statistical uh, tailor model uh, type of rule. And so, yeah, he's young. He's only been there for a year or two. Right. But, uh, he'd be my choice, uh, uh, but he's not, he's not going to be the choice. Francine, I'm confused. Uh, Bill, who's a brilliant man, Jeff Gunlock or Neil Kashkari? <laughs> Neil Kashkari. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I wasn't quite sure there. Okay, we've got I, Jeff Gunlock. And, and I we got Jeff Gunlock and Bill Gross on the same page, which is always good. Many would suggest, Mr. Gross, sir, that you're talking your book, not that Mr. Gunlock has ever been uh, uh, challenged with the idea of talking his book. What kind of economy would Neil Kashkari give us, say, versus a rules-based John Taylor of Stanford University? Well, the, uh, that's interesting, too, because Taylor's a potential choice. And I was looking up on your uh, Bloomberg uh, System, uh, there's a model there, Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, and you can put in your own inputs. Yes, you um, can. It depends on what uh, it depends on what Taylor thinks is the natural rate of unemployment, and it makes a huge difference. If the natural rate of unemployment is five and a quarter versus four and a quarter, which it seems to be at the moment, then Fed funds, you know, should be a hundred basis points different. In other words, at uh, at four and a quarter. Uh, in terms of a Nehru, as we call it, then uh, the Taylor rule with some modifications in your system you know, basically suggests that we're there in, in terms of where Fed funds should be. So what would Taylor do? Uh, he'd probably follow the Taylor rule. And uh, you know, at the moment, uh, absent modifications, he'd probably raise interest rates a little bit. Kashkari, uh, I don't think would. Uh, Mr. Gross, I'm looking at uh, dollar-yen, so it seems to be retesting 113. A lot of technical analysts saying if it closes above 113, it looks like 114 is the next big level. Actually, if the Fed hikes um, in December, what's the, who's the central bank that's going to have the toughest time? Well, it uh, depends on if they're uh, fixated on their currency, and I wouldn't deny that they are, although they don't speak to it. Um, I, I don't think the BOJ is, is, is moving. The, the BOJ is the last central bank to move off of their stance. The stance at the moment is a cap on the 10-year of 10 basis points and basically flat for short-term interest rates. They, they'll stay there until inflation uh, you know, sees the whites of uh, 2% or, or higher, and that may not happen. Uh, the ECB is changing, as we know, probably will reduce quantitative easing. Um, so I, I, I'd say the 
the biggest challenge, uh, as your question points out, is, uh, is in terms of the BOJ. The yen uh, will gradually weaken if uh, they s yeah. seem firm on their stance, and they, uh, to my way of thinking, they will be. Bill, one more question, if we could. You've been very generous yeah. with your time this morning. If we get the sea change view of Bill Gross above a 2.40 with the idea of the great moderation being over. Can you link that to your historic claim that financial repression will continue? Can you now say we may see an end to retirees' financial repression? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, what would it take on the 10-year? Would it take 3 percent, 4 percent in order to begin to compensate savers and not to repress them? You know, probably, Tom. It, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shaky definition in terms of repression. But, you know, financial repression existed for 30 or 40 years after World War II until the Volcker era. And I, I assume that it's going to continue for 10, 20, 30 years here as well. And that means that, yeah, interest rates uh, aren't going to keep going down. That's what I'm talking about. But they may not go up uh, significantly. We will continue to be repressed. Yeah. Savers will continue to get the short end of the stick. Bill, you've been most generous with your time and over the over decade that you and I have worked together. Thank you so much for this perspective this morning. Uh, Bill Gross of Janice Henderson there. Really, uh, with all, what I'm going to editorialize is a regime change and what if, if we get out over sustained higher rates. That was exceptionally interesting, Francine, just a, a completely different tone uh, given where we are. And as you mentioned, Francine, equity futures trade down, as Mr. Gross suggested, that's that correlation. Yeah, it certainly is. If you look at you know some of the uh, dynamics, so currencies seem to be moving one way, and, and actually uh, futures, is, you know, don't not liking the jobs report. So I wonder whether there's a little bit of dichotomy there, Tom. It is always a well-timed conversation. And today, a more nuanced conversation with our National Economic Director, Mr. Cohn, of course, formerly with Goldman Sachs. Uh, Gary Cohn um, has been, I think, very transparent about the politics. Right now, here's David Weston with the Mr. White Cohn. House, where we're joined by Gary Cohn, Director of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Welcome back to the program, Gary. Very good for you to join us. So we've been reporting extensively on these numbers since they came out an hour ago. And we've got the, the problems with the hurricane and affected the overall number of jobs. But you've got really strong numbers on unemployment, 16-year low, and also on wage growth, 2.9% annualized. Let's put these in the larger perspective for us. Uh, has it ever been the case in history that we've had a massive tax cut with this employment situation, that, particularly that will involve deficit spending, at least in the short term? Have we ever done that in this country? So, so, David, thanks thanks for having me, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Look, we at the White House are very excited about the numbers. You're right. There is some, some noise in the number because of the hurricane. And uh, as you said, you discount that noise out, and you're looking through the numbers, and you're looking at the wage growth, and you're looking at the unemployment number, which is the real bright news here. Look, I think what the, the numbers are showing you and the question you're asking me is you're asking about President Trump's economic agenda and what he's committed to and what we're committed to here in the White House. We believe that the tax cut is essential to continue the economic growth that we've started. Yes, we've started some real economic growth. We've been rolling back regulations, but we need to continue the economic growth. We can need to continue the wage growth here in America. 
So do you have reason to believe it will not continue? And, and perhaps more pointedly, uh, in history, we've always had deficit spending and tax cuts in, in really fallow times, not in the robust times. Right now, we have a pretty robust time. Why doesn't the president say things are going great? We don't need to really intervene. David, we've had a couple good quarters of GDP, but we're still not on a sustainable level of growth that we should be and want to be here in the United States. We've been averaging about 2% growth. The president is not happy with 2% growth. He ran on a pro-growth platform, and he wants to deliver a pro-growth economic agenda. We believe that tax reform is necessary. We need to allow American companies to compete on a level playing field. Our taxes do not allow American companies, American businesses to compete around the world on a level playing field. Our corporate tax structure and our business tax structure is just too high today. Hey, Gary, no one we talked to believes you're going to see sustainable 2.9% growth. Okay. That, that you're arguing for a tax cut. No, we, uh, no I'm saying we, that we, with we, the tax cut, I'm saying with the tax cut, no one thinks we're going to get sustained that either way. What do you say to that? Well, we, we completely disagree with that. We completely disagree with that. We obviously think, and, and, and if you listen to what Kevin Hassett came out yesterday, our CEA director, he came out and talked about the economic growth that we believe, we strongly believe we will have by cutting business taxes and attracting business back to America, attracting capital back to America, growing opportunities here for employees to be employed, creating wage, more wage growth in the United States and keep the sustainable system that we're, that we're at right now. We believe we can have three plus percent growth with taxes and the regulation that we're in the reg reform that we're after now. Hey, Gary, I want to get your take on a, a Trump tweet. It was about the stock market. He says, uh, the stock market hit an all-time high. This is President Trump tweeting uh, yesterday. Unemployment lowest in 16 years. Business and manufacturing enthusiasm at the highest level in decades. Do you really want a White House that's associated with record highs when you know how precarious that can actually be? And we've had like 46 of them for the S&P so far this year. Look, president's committed to economic growth. He's committed to a pro-growth, pro-job agenda. The stock market is representative of what his agenda is and the fact that we're having real impact. So we came in, so we Gary, said so you, we were going to so roll you're back tying your regulations. Success. You're tying your success to what the stock market does? Come on. We're, we're tying our success to jobs, job creation, better opportunities for American citizens. The stock market just happens to represent that. You, you and I both know how the stock market is priced. The stock market is priced on expectations of future earnings of businesses. And those future earnings are basically representative of what they think businesses are going to be able to accomplish in the future. Gary, I just wonder, if it is about the market, how this bleeds ultimately into the decision-making elsewhere. The next Fed chair, for instance, as an administration, are you sensitive to the way markets would take the next Fed chair and who it might be? Look, we as administration are sensitive to everything. We're sensitive to all the policies. The president thinks about economic growth and he thinks about middle class Americans every day and middle income Americans every day and hardworking Americans every day and how he can put them in a better position economically, how he can help yeah. improve their life. That's what the president thinks about every day. Gary, I want to know what you think about it, though. More specifically, for the next Fed chair, are you sensitive to how the markets may interpret that individual and their policies? Like I said, we think holistically about everything. 
We're, we're not myopic on any topic. We in the White House and along with the president have to think about all of the topics together. That's our job is to think holistically about everything. Well, let's think holistically about this. Um, do you think the next Fed chair requires a PhD in economics to really garner the respect of those on the FOMC, Gary? You know, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of a search that's going on right now. I don't think that's appropriate. So, so Gary, can I, can I come back to your tax plan for a moment? Um, uh, you say you're going to get to 3% sustained growth. Could you just explain to us exactly what in the tax plan will generate that? As you know well, economists say growth like that comes from two sources, and that is more people working, demographics, uh, and productivity. What will yep. those taxes, if you get your plan the way you want it, how will it either generate more people working or increase productivity? David, we, we couldn't agree with you more. So when you lower the business tax rate on the pass-through entities, on the corporate rates, we make ourselves more competitive. We make it that businesses want to locate in the United States. When they locate in the United States, they have to hire labor. They go out and compete for labor. They hire people. We see wages increase because we hire people. We're also going to see enormous amount of productivity in, in these numbers because as we build new, new factories and we build new manufacturing, a lot of it's going to be technologically driven. So the productivity numbers are really going to grow at, by, the, by leaps and bounds because we are a technologically driven economy here. And we think that we can increase productivity dramatically by creating a tax code that allows businesses to compete here in the United States with, their, with other countries around the world. Gary, I Gary know you got to go. On a of the White House, uh, the National Economic Director there talking about policy and prescription and also, of course, always the politics of uh, Washington. Our policy and prescription is to give you a data check Dollar stronger, yen 113.38, the euro well under 117, 116.90 on the euro, sterling 130.34, gold I'm watching carefully, now down $8, make it $9 this morning, that's really something to watch here, I don't have the chart in front of me, I'll work that up and try to give it out to radio. Uh, first out on social, 10-year yield now rounded up 2.40%. We have had a weaker 10-year, uh, 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 a higher 10-year yield, I should say, over the last 30 minutes off the analysis of this important jobs report. Francine Nkwa in London, I'm Tom Keene in New York. On Jobs Day, this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>